When I was a little girl, it wasn't unusual to come home and find my mom cleaning the house to the music of Andre Crouch. For some reason, that kind of R&B vibe always motivated her. And she loved Andre Crouch. In fact, I was introduced to the music of Andre Crouch as a little girl because my mother would play him on, on our stereo, which used to be like, look like a dresser. Remember when stereos used to look like dressers? Some of you? Others of you, just go to an antique store. Maybe you'll find one. They're like four to six feet long. And they've got like a record player in the middle with a a lid that you lift up on hinges. And there is the record player. And you would, you know, you would take that handle with the needle on the end and put it in. And in those days, they used to go around in a circle and they would play. But one of the songs that she used to listen to was Jesus is the Answer. And Andre Crouch would sing, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. If you have some questions in the corners of your mind, traces of discouragement and peace you cannot find, reflections of your past seem to face you every day. But there's one thing I want you to know, that Jesus is the way. I know that you've got mountains that you think you cannot climb. I know your skies look so dark that you think the sun will never shine. But in case you don't know it, I tell you God's word is true. Everything that he has promised, I know that he will do it for you. Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him, there is no other. Jesus is the way. For those of you who have taught Sunday school, you know that no matter what the question you ask, where was Jesus born? Jesus. You know, you know, what, you know, what, um, what is a winged, you know, what is a, um, I don't know, just whatever the question is, they always answer Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the ultimate questions of life can only be answered by Jesus. But even as we mentioned in prayer, it's not only that Jesus gives us the answer, but he himself is the answer to all of life's questions. There's no question beyond his reach or understanding. Have you ever been stumped by a question? I have. I remember in in second grade, one of my little Jewish friends came to me and said, Cheryl, can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? I was like, oh, no. You know, because if I say yes, then that means that God is limited and can't lift it. If I say no, then she'll say, well, then I don't believe. So I told her I'd get back to her. I asked my mom, and she just kept saying, Jesus can do anything. Jesus can do anything. And I was like, yes. But can he make a rock so big he can't lift it? I asked dad. And dad said, (laughs) that question's been around for a long time. But nothing resonated with me. Until years later, I read C.S. Lewis and he said, nonsense is nonsense, no matter what context it is asked. (laughs) Jesus is wisdom. He is wiser than the wisdom of man. 
Have you ever noticed that most people, like my little friend in second grade, don't ask questions for sincere reasons? They use questions as an excuse to condemn or entrap or justify their own position. They don't want to believe. So the questions are really a distraction from the real issue because they don't want to believe. But Jesus uses the questions of men, whether sincere or insincere, to reveal the pollution in the thought process, the purpose of life, true reality, and to call men to repentance. Do you have sincere questions? Jesus has the answer. In Romans 11.33, Paul writes this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Then again, Paul in Colossians 2.3 tells us that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures, the complete treasures, the entirety of treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But Jesus is not only an answer giver, but he is the answer. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James 3.17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. It's pure. It's available. It's accessible. You don't need to be afraid of any questions, sincere or insincere. Jesus will use both the sincere and insincere questions that you are asked to reveal the prejudice in the heart of men, to reveal the plans and purposes of God, to reveal that there is life after death and the reality of his person. In Luke 20, Jesus is met with a barrage of questions from his antagonists. They question his authority. They question his relationship with the Roman authorities. They question his authority about life after death. And even though these men mean these questions for evil to entrap Jesus, Jesus is not intimidated. In fact, Jesus never avoids the difficult or hard questions of life. Isn't that incredible? He doesn't run from it or go, oh no, there's the lady with a hard question. He's ready to answer, and he is the answer. As Jesus answers this barrage of questions, Those who are asking are the ones who become exposed, embarrassed, convicted, and corrected. We're told that those listening marvel at the answers of Jesus. Others are silenced at the answers of Jesus. Some even like his answer, and they say, you have answered well. Others are intimidated. Verse 40 tells us they dared not question him anymore. But the interesting thing is you cannot ask Jesus a question without getting a probing question in response. The antagonists of Jesus ask three questions, but Jesus asks seven questions that are recorded in Luke chapter 20. In verse two, Jesus says, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Now, their questions do not stump Jesus, but Jesus' questions stump them. 
Verse 15. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Verse 17. What then is written? Verse 23. Why do you test me? Verse 24. Whose image and inscription does it have? Verse 41. How can they say that Christ is David's son? And verse 44, Jesus there, I'm sorry, David therefore calls him Lord. How is he then his son? You see, Jesus' questions reveal the bias of men, the rightful condemnation of men, the motivation of men, the purpose of men, the responsibility of men to recognize the Messiah and the right interpretation of the scriptures. In verses 1 through 18, we have the authority of Jesus questioned. The chief priests, the scribes, together with the elders, confront Jesus as he is teaching in the temple courtyard. This would have been the temple courtyard that he had just cleansed. The one that he had driven out the money changers and the bazaars of Annas from. He has proclaimed it or claimed it as his father's house. And a place for prayer, intercession for all nations. So they come to Jesus and they say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is he who gave you this authority? Verse 2. What authority are they talking about? They're not just talking about the authority to cleanse the temple. They're talking about the authority of Jesus himself. Who made you a rabbi? What rabbinical school did you go to? Because in that day, every rabbi got his authority or his backing by, he went to Rabbi Harvard or Rabbi Yale or Rabbi USC It was the rabbinic school, which in those days would have functioned like a college. And that was their authority for what they said. And in that authority, they never spoke what they had learned from God or from scripture, but only what they had learned from men. So they would quote Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai, but they would never say, God said Because they didn't believe that they had the authority to say what God said or even to use scripture, that they weren't worthy of quoting the scripture. They had to quote someone else interpreting the scripture. So who gave Jesus the authority? What? The authority to heal. Remember in John chapter three, verse two, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's a Pharisee. And he says, we've been watching you, the Pharisees, and we know that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. We know that nobody can heal. Nobody has ever healed except for Elijah in the history of Israel. But you come and we know that healing is divine. No one ever healed diseases, delivered the demon-possessed, cleansed the lepers, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead, fed the multitude, calmed wind and waves. But Jesus did. He had the authority to heal men. To, he had authority over nature to calm the wind and the waves. But then... 
no one ever spoke like Jesus. In fact, we're told in John 7, 46, the chief priest sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus at the temple. And they came back without Jesus. And the chief priest said, why didn't you arrest him? And they said this, no one ever spoke like this man. Peter at one point said to Jesus, recorded in John 6, 68, where else should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Jesus spoke with authority. He had authority over nature. He could stand on the bow of the bow of the boat, the bow of the bow of the boat, or the bow with the bow of a boat. And he could say to the, to the violent waves and the vicious wind, stop, be still. And his word, his voice was the only voice that could bring peace to nature. Only voice. He had authority over demons. His voice was so powerful that demons would beg him for mercy. His words, although authority, authoritative, were also gracious. Luke 4.22 tells us that they marveled at the gracious words which he spoke. But they were words also of eternal life. But not only, not only did Jesus have authority over disease and sickness, the elements of nature speak with authority, but no one ever lived with the authority of Jesus. He alone was absolutely righteous in all that he did. Wherever he went, you know, the high priest and the priest, if they touched something unclean, they became unclean. But if Jesus touched something unclean, the unclean became clean. He was the only man who could walk among sinners and not be defiled by sin. But tax collectors were restored to sons of Abraham. Sinful women had demons removed and became once again the daughters of Abraham. He lived absolutely righteously. Jesus said in John, I always do those things which please the Father. Who else could make such a claim that they always 24-7 thought thoughts that pleased the Father, spoke words that pleased God, lived and acted out in every gesture what pleased the father. Never lost his temper. He never went like this to a Roman chariot. Never went like this to one of the disciples. Never a wrong look. Never a wrong action. He was always compassionate, always merciful, always accessible to men, reachable, always gracious. 
How was it that Jesus could do such amazing things, speak with such a resting authority, live so righteously, and yes, have authority to cleanse the temple, which the high priest didn't have, which the priest didn't have, which the zealots didn't have. After Jesus' death, the zealots, um, this people called the Sacri, went through and tried to cleanse the temple, but they couldn't. But Jesus uses these questions to point out the prejudice in the heart of those asking about his authority. He answered their question with a question. In other words, he took authority over their question. Have you noticed that there is always something hidden behind every question? Every question has either a desire or a longing, a leading, a pain, a hurt, a prejudice, a justification, an excuse behind the question. There's always something hidden in a question. How often are our own questions laced with prejudice? Brian always catches my hidden motivation. When I asked him the other day, did you need this ball? He realized that what I was actually saying is, you let this out of the dishwasher when you could have put it inside. So you better have a darn good reason why it's sitting on my clean counter. He said to me, why do you test me? The question, do you feel okay, is actually the question or the motivation. You look sick. Why are you wearing your mascara on your cheekbones? Rabbis ask their questions to stimulate thought, to get at the heart or the root or the motivation. The, the thing, the object, the agenda behind the question. What thoughts were in my mind that made me ask this? What pain was in my heart? What am I trying to justify? What am I feeling? What has happened to me that I'm looking for the answer? Jesus says to those asking, I will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? The religious leaders could not answer this straightforwardly or honestly. In other words, they could not talk with any authority about authority. They couldn't authoritatively answer this question. Why? Because their thought processes, their rationale, Their motivation behind everything was their own self-promotion and popularity. Okay, I'm sorry, but this is so funny. There's somebody trying to lift the umbrella out there. It's like, oh, she's waving. (laughs) Aw. Sorry, you know the things I see up here and you think I don't see? I see so much. And I have to keep from laughing, okay? I wish we had a YouTube of that. Oh, good. Here comes, here comes maintenance. They're going to get that umbrella up. 
The religious leaders could not answer it straightforwardly or honestly. Their answer was predicated on the reaction of the crowd. They were afraid to say that John's baptism was of men because the crowd knew he was a prophet. They recognized John as a prophet. In Luke 1, 65 through 66, after the, the birth of John, we're told that those things that happened were noised about Judea. In other words, John's birth, how Zechariah had been in the temple at the hour of prayer and been um, struck dumb or unable to speak by the, the angel and come out and not been able to say anything until John was, the, was born, John the Baptist was born. The fact that his mother and his father were so aged, the fact that his father was a priest, all these things were talked about all over Judea. And we're told that all of Judea had their eyes on John from the moment of his birth. When his father wrote, his name is John, and all of a sudden his tongue was loosed. And he began to praise the Lord and prophesy over his son. Everyone was watching John the Baptist. What would become of John the Baptist? They could see God's hand on John even from his inception and conception. And so they watched. They listened to John. We're told that multitudes went out to the Judean wilderness, out of Jerusalem, out of the cities of Israel to be baptized with, by John. But we're told that John preached and said, there is one who is among you even now, who's going forth is before me, but he is after me. And I'm not even worthy to stoop and tie the laces of his sandal. And when he saw Jesus, he pointed him out and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Jesus. We're told that two of John's disciples, at least two of John's disciples, John, who wrote the gospel of John, Andrew, who was Peter's brother, had been John the Baptist's disciples. But when John introduced Jesus as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, they immediately began to follow Jesus. John chapter one. John also said, I didn't know who he was, but the Spirit had told me I would recognize him. And when John baptized Jesus, the heaven was opened and God announced from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And John saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. And he knew, he knew the one he had believed in, the Lamb of God, the one who would bring the axe to the root of the tree of Israel that chopped down everything that they were trusting in, the one who is truly righteous, who would remove the sin of the world. They were afraid to say that John's baptism was of man. 
because the people had been observing John. Also, John the Baptist was considered a martyr because he was killed by Herod. He had also been of the priestly line. His father had been a priest. Yet the religious leaders could not say that his baptism or the right to baptize was from God. Because then they would have to admit that he was a prophet and spoke God's word. And John had pointed to Jesus. Again, John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God. The religious leaders refused to answer Jesus. Verse 7, they refused to dignify Jesus' question with an answer. Their answer was not one of ignorance. It was of outrage and dishonesty. They couldn't answer Jesus without implicating themselves in one way or another. Jesus then told a parable that pointed to their dishonesty. It was about a man, a nobleman, who planted a vineyard. Now, when someone would plant a vineyard in those days, he would take a plot of land, and the first thing he would do would build a a wine press. Then he would build a tower, and then he would plant vines, grapevines, and he would cultivate them. Um, In those days, too, a a grapevine had to have, like, um, little fences because a grapevine couldn't lay on the ground because the bugs would get the the grapes. And so they would usually build them on these trellises. So they would be up off the ground and easy to harvest. So there was quite a bit of work in building or establishing a vineyard. The owner would put a lot of effort and design and time. It was an investment and money into cultivating a vineyard. But this vineyard owner leased his vineyard to those who hadn't planted, who hadn't built, who hadn't worked for it because he needed to go into a far country for a long time. So he sent his servants to receive rent, rent in the form of the wine or the fruit that was being made or harvested by these occupiers. But those who leased the vineyard beat and sent away the first empty-handed. A second servant was sent to these people, and they beat the second and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third, and they wounded and cast him out. It was their refusal to acknowledge the owner so that they might take possession of the vineyard. Now, according to the law of Moses, if you owned or received an inheritance, like a vineyard, it could be leased, but it couldn't be sold. In the year of Jubilee, it always reverted back to the original owner. But these men thought, if we can deny or not pay rent. That way we're not acknowledging that anyone owns this but us. 
Their refusal to give what was due in rent was their way of trying to steal or take credit for the vineyard. The owner, in the meantime, reasoned, well, those were servants. If I send my only son, surely he's coming with my authority. They will give him the fruit that is due. But those leasing the vineyard knew it was the son. And their reasoning was by killing the son, the owner would be forced to give them the vineyard because there'd be no heir. And therefore, he would have to leave it in their hands. So the occupiers killed the owner's son and cast him out of the vineyard. Having told this parable, it was clear to those listening that the vineyard was Israel because over and over again in the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah, God talked about Israel being his vineyard. He talked about the vine that he had planted in the wilderness that became the nation of Israel. They would know that the servants that God sent were the prophets because Second Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah makes it clear that God sent his servants, Ezekiel, the prophets, to speak and turn the people from their unrighteousness and to give God the fruit that was due, true worship, faithfulness, love, obedience. But the people rebelled and they served idols and they would not serve the living God. This would resonate with both the Pharisee, Sadducee, elders, scribes, and people listening. No one was in the dark about this parable. And in this parable, Jesus is saying, I'm the son that's coming with the authority of my father. And you have cast out the prophets and treated them shamefully. Something that that generation took credit for. Jesus had said earlier to them, you killed the pro- your fathers killed the prophets and you built the tombs. Their reasoning was saying, oh, if this had happened in our day, we would have respected the prophet. But it wasn't true. They had killed the prophets. They knew. Jesus then asked the rightful, what the rightful condemnation is for men that would kill and cast out the son of the owner of the vineyard. Therefore, here's another question. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What would you do to someone who killed your son? There's a, there's a video on YouTube where the, the murderer of a young girl stands up to get sentencing. And the father is sitting on the other side of the courtroom and all of a sudden leaps over all these people to to tackle the man that murdered his daughter. And, you know, the officers in the court, they grab the father and they hold him back. 
But I have to say, every time I watch that video, my sympathies are with the Father. God entrusted the world, entrusted Israel with his only begotten son who was full of grace and truth and authority, who healed and spoke and acted with authority. The answer is that the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy those vine dressers who killed his son and they give the vineyard to others. This is exactly what God has done. The nation of Israel was destroyed in AD 70. The temple was destroyed. No more sacrifices because the temple of God dwells in those who receive Jesus Christ. He has given the temple of God to us. We are that new people who have been given, given the vineyard. We've been brought into the promises and the goodness and the things that God has done. We now enter into the works of God. Matthew tells us that the religious leaders realized that they were the vine dressers in the parable. Luke 20 verse 19 tells us the same thing. They realized who they were in the story. He's talking about us. He, those are our intentions, intentions. Those are our thoughts. That's what we're about to do, to kill this one who has said he is the son of God. But though they recognize themselves, they still refuse to give God the fruit he deserves. They were the ones who persecuted the prophets and anyone who made any spiritual requirements of them. They are the ones with the hateful thoughts toward Jesus, the Messiah, God's son. Jesus points to the scriptures and asks, what then is this? Oh, because their answer is, when Jesus says he's gonna take the vineyard away from them and give them to, uh, you know, destroy them and give it to others, they answer, certainly not. Certainly not. Isn't that how so many people are. When you say, if you don't receive Jesus Christ, you have no covering for your sin. Therefore, you will atone for your own sins for eternity because that's how long it's gonna take to atone for your sins. And what do people say? Certainly not. I've been a good person. Certainly not. I don't deserve judgment. Certainly not. Jesus then points to the scripture and asks, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus calls them to think about what the scripture says. His question made them have to process the ramifications of scripture. We read in John five thirty nine that Jesus says, you do search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, but these are they which testify of me. In Psalm 40, which is a prophetic psalm, it says, sacrifice and offering you have not required. 
Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will. The volume of scriptures all speak about Jesus Christ. You see, these men read the scriptures, but they used the scriptures as an end in itself. I read the Bible. I read the scriptures. I'm righteous. You see, reading the scriptures does not make you righteous. It's not an end in itself just to read the Bible. You know, it's possible to make reading the Bible a law. Did you realize that? You can put yourself under the law saying, I have to read five chapters a day. I have to read. I have to read. The Bible is a means to an end. And that end is Jesus Christ. The Bible is to lead us to our need for Jesus Christ. And bring us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you read the Bible just to read the Bible. If you read the Bible to say, I'm spiritual, I read the Bible. If you use the Bible to justify or feel righteous. Then the Bible has become to you a law. And not a means to knowing Jesus. You see These Pharisees, these scribes who wrote the Bible, who would copy the Bible, who would discuss the Bible, these chief priests who were to live according to the Bible, Leviticus, they had the scriptures, they read the scriptures, but they never had a relationship with God. God, and therefore they refused to recognize their Messiah when he came. In fact, they killed the Messiah because the word of God was their way of justifying themselves, and it became a law to them instead of their lead to Jesus Christ, to the Messiah. The Bible is meant to reveal to us our need of Jesus and Jesus himself so that we can enter into a personal relationship with him. And the Bible leads us deeper and deeper and deeper into relationship with Jesus Christ. If you go to the Bible and you don't see Jesus, And if you don't end up by reading and saying, Lord, you are so good. I want more of you. Then then the Bible is a law to you and not life to you. The Bible is meant to give us life through Jesus Christ and take us deeper, deeper, deeper into the love of Jesus to solidify our relationship to Jesus again and again and again. That's why it doesn't matter how many scriptures you read. Whether you read one or the whole book of Chronicles in one sitting, it doesn't matter. Because it's about what have you learned about Jesus Christ? How have you seen Jesus portrayed in scriptures? 
It's about relationship, relationship, relationship. It's about Jesus. Jesus. The whole volume of the book from Genesis to Revelation. It's about Jesus. Yeah, the answer to the Bible. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus then makes a connection to Daniel 2. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's dream? He sees all the kingdoms of man and a rock comes that is not not, um, hewn from stone and comes and it pummels all the kingdoms of men, turns them to powder and then sets up a kingdom and the rock rules over the kingdom forever and ever. And Jesus says on that rock, fall on that, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But whoever it falls, remember that rock again in Daniel. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter two. Wherever that rock falls, it grinds to powder. Jesus was giving them an opportunity to leave their prejudice, receive the truth, realize he is the Messiah, fall on the rock, but it would cost position, self-righteousness but there would be a salvation. Now there's more testing. Verses 19 through 26, the chief priest that very hour wanted to lay hands on Jesus, but they couldn't because of Jesus' popularity among the people. Jesus had done for the common people what the religious leaders never did. Jesus had lived among them. Jesus had loved on them. Jesus had healed them. Jesus had talked with them. Jesus had associated with them. Jesus had restored them to being the descendants and children of Abraham. And Jesus had offered them forgiveness of sins and salvation. So the chief priests watched him and they sent spies to entrap him. They hoped to seize upon his word, to trip up Jesus in his words, to get Jesus to say just one thing that they could use against him before men or before Caesar. So many today... Seize upon one word, one sentence, one statement taken out of context and do not measure it against the whole counsel of God or the whole man and everything that he has said. They use it to condemn, to disqualify so they don't have to give an account. And the chief priest hoped to condemn Jesus. It's a trick question that they ask. They say, teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, And you do not show personal favoritism, but teach the way of God truly. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus says yes, the people will turn on them because they felt that the taxes were supporting the oppression of Rome and keeping Israel from their nationalism. If Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, then the chief priest will go right to Pilate and the Roman authorities will seize him and condemn him for sedition. And the enemies of Jesus are sure. Oh, we've got them with this one now. But Jesus asked them a question. First of all, why do you test me? This only proved that they were the occupiers in the vineyard. They were looking on something to seize upon so they could kill the heir and owner of the vineyard. Why are you doing this? Their motivation is exposed. Then Jesus says, show me a denarius. Don't you love this? Jesus doesn't have a denarius. He doesn't go in his pocket and go, oh, here's a denarius. What do you see on this? He has to ask, anyone have a denarius? He lives so totally in dependence on his father. Anyone have a denarius? 
I love that. He doesn't even have a denarius. Then he's, then as the Pharisees pull out their denarius because they've got them, he says, whose, whose inscription, whose name and image, whose image and inscription do you see? And they said, well, Caesar's. And on the denarius, not only was there a picture of Caesar, but the inscription read, Caesar, son of Caesar, son of the God Caesar, claiming Caesar is God with the son. And then Caesar's inscription, it was true that Caesar had minted his own money at his own expense. The denarius actually did in fact belong to Caesar. Jesus' answer is, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Whoever, 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 whatever the image you bear, who do you look like? In whose image are you? Because whoever's image you bear, that's the one that you owe your allegiance to. Whatever signature is written on your life, that's the one that you owe. Give Caesar what he made and sign, but give God what he made and what he signed. Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27 say that man was created in the image of God and bear his likeness. And God has inscribed his signature on our lives with the blood of Jesus Christ. We owe our all to our creator, to the one whose image we bear. You know, some people, the longer they live, the more they bear the image of Satan. And they will give to Satan at the end of this life what is due to Satan. But to those who serve Jesus Christ, we're told in Corinthians that the more we look at Jesus, the more we behold him in the word, the more we bear his image and likeness so that we will render to God because we bear his image and his inscription. Now we come to the Sadducees. These were the very liberals. These were the religious liberals of the day. Ordinarily, they didn't get along with the Pharisees. However, they had all come together in their denouncement of Jesus. They were all part of the Sanhedrin. In fact, the leader of the Sanhedrin was a Sadducee. The chief priest, Caiaphas, and Ananias were both part of the sin. Uh, the chief priests were both Sadducees. But Jesus had become a threat to their authority, their way of life, and their position. The Sadducees, as a religious group, maintained a mutual, advantageous relationship with Rome. Rome had given them authority to be high priest. Their authority did not come from their birthright. In fact, actually the birthright belonged to Zacharias and his family. But they had bought this birthright from, I mean, they had bought the right to become high priest from Rome. As Sadducees, they didn't believe in anything spiritual. They naturalized Every miracle of the Bible. In fact, they only believed in the law of Moses or the first five books of the Bible because they were written by Moses. So they said, we only believe in what Moses wrote. 
They did not take Joshua or Judges, Ruth for Second um, Samuel for Second uh, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. I forgot Kings. They didn't take any of those as authoritative, but only what was written by Moses as authoritative. And then again, they sought to naturalize, uh, make it symbolic or allegorical, the miracles that were found in those first five books. They didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead because that was spiritual. No heaven, no hell, no life after death. So they pose a hypothetical situation or a hypothetical question to Jesus. Now, it is a story, again, hypothetical. In other words, it never happened. But what if? It's a what if situation. But they don't really want to get Jesus' opinion but they want to justify and rationalize and defend their own opinion of not believing in a resurrection from the dead. Can you imagine resting your eternity, des- your eternal destination on a hypothetical situation? A what if? This is what a lot of people do. What about the people who never hear the gospel? What about the people who are in the darkest reaches of the jungle who don't hear the gospel? Therefore, this hypothetical question, because you don't know if they've heard the gospel or not, you're imagining some creature that's never heard the gospel. Therefore, I will not become a Christian because there might be some person out there in the deepest reaches of the jungle that's never heard. Therefore, I won't receive it. Can you imagine? That's, that's stupid. Don't tell my grandson I said that. Because that's a bad word in the Broderson household. Yes, Hudson said, Grandma, we don't use words like that in this house. Stupid. And I kept saying it. You know, the more I'm told not to say a word, the more it pops out. But imagine resting your eternal destiny on a hypothetical situation. And yet so many people do. The story that these Sadducees have is preposterous as best. It's about a woman who marries and outlives seven brothers. My dad used to always say whenever he would do this passage of scripture, I'd check the coffee. <laughs> so they said, okay, according to the law of Moses, if a, if a man dies, his brother is to marry his wife. So now in this family, some poor woman gives birth to seven sons. And none of the other sons marry, just the oldest one. And his wife is passed from brother to brother to brother. And all seven men marry this woman and all seven men die. I think that's a black widow, isn't it? This story sounds ridiculous. And they really, yet they really thought they had Jesus with this one. I mean, how many questions when you put them up to the light of the reality of Jesus Christ, you're like, that is so senseless. Like the rock question. It becomes a nonsensical, crazy question because of Jesus' truth and wisdom and glory. But Jesus answers by explaining that heaven requires a whole new lifestyle. He uses phrases like those who are counted worthy, attained to that age, resurrection from the dead, These Sadducees have been devaluating and dismissing something 
that they should have seriously been considering. The resurrection wasn't something to have an opinion over, but something to seek to secure. Death is not a demotion, but a promotion to those who are counted worthy. Marriage is the right fit for earth, for procreation, for protection, for posterity. But angels are created for the environment of heaven, for the lifestyle of heaven. And those who are worthy are re-equipped, remade for heaven. We're corrupt. We have deficits here on earth. So we, we need, we need partnership. But when we get to heaven, where there's no corruption and no deficits, we will be remade. This corruption will put on incorruption. This mortality will put on immortality. There will be a recreation, a transformation for those who are counted worthy. Heaven is not less than earth, but much more. You see, I think that's one of the mistakes. We try to put earth, earth's limitation, earthly limitations on heaven. That's what we try to do. We try to take earth with us to heaven. You know, Job said, naked I came into this world and naked I'm going to leave this earth. In other words, you have to leave everything that belongs to earth on earth, right? You can't take your piano. You can't take your dog. You can't take your money. You can't even take your clothes. You can't take your body, your bones, your eyes to heaven. What is of earth stays on earth. Heaven is a promotion. It's a greater glory. It's greater beauty. It's greater relationships. It's greater power and enablement. It's not less than. And yet we keep trying to say, but in heaven, will my dog be there? <laughs> I don't know about yours. Mine will. <clears throat> it's not less than. It's more than. But I want to be married to Herbert Stell. No. No. Herbert's been secretly praying for liberation. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's more than. It's more than earth. So much more that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. It's greater, it's better. No one's going to get to heaven going, no, no. You know, I want it. I wanted my own bed. My pillow's not here. Where's the coffee? No one's going to do that. No deficits, no need for caffeine. Obviously, I've had mine. But in heaven, no deficits. It's a promotion. It's a better. It's a better than. It's a new lifestyle. It's equal to angels. You're called a son of God. We take on divinity when we get to heaven. Yes, we are called sons or daughters of the resurrection. And we can never, ever, ever, ever die. We can never feel pain. We can never feel deficit or hurt or that something's missing ever again. There's no sorrow or pain. But old things are passed away and all things have become new. 
No more threat, no more fear, no more anxiety ever, ever. Nothing that can harm in all of God's holy mountain. Jesus points to the scriptures that they accepted. To the physical patriarchs they claimed relationship to, to be related to. And he goes to Exodus 3, 6, where Moses, the lawgiver, the one that they said, we only believe in Moses and what he wrote, where Moses, who was revered above everyone else to these men. In fact, at one point they go to Jesus and they say, we know Moses, but who are you? John chapter 7. Jesus points to the encounter that Moses had with God, his first encounter with God at the burning bush, where God introduces himself to Moses, where Moses first enters into relationship with God. And there God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am presently. I am Not I was. Hey, you remember, you know, your grandfather Abraham? Yeah, I was his God. You remember Jacob? Yep, I was his God. No, it's not a was. It is. I am presently right now. I'm looking at them. Moses showed that God is the God of the living, not the dead. In verse 38, Jesus is recorded as saying, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Now, Jesus goes from answering their questions to asking them the ultimate question. Then enemies of Jesus are silenced by his wisdom, his authority, his answers, and his word. And Jesus asks them a question. It is a question that forces them to consider the scripture and consider the implications of scripture. Jesus uses Psalm 110.1, and speaking of David, said, how can they say that the Messiah is David's son? You see, it was well known to the scribes, Pharisees, anyone who read the Bible, that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. It was promised to David by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. David wrote about it in Psalm 89, verses 3 through 4. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 17, 22, 23, chapter 30, chapter 33, Ezekiel 37, 24 through 25, Hosea 3, 4 through 5, Amos 9, 11. That's kind of fast, huh? It's because I'm so out of time. Then I've got to catch a plane. Let's see if that happens. Those and many others were told that the Messiah will be of the lineage of David. Yet, this Messiah will be Lord. David goes so far as to call him Lord. Same Greek word, kurios, as used for the name of God, the Lord. The Bible, I mean, the Lord is acknowledging, the Lord himself is acknowledging David's son as Lord, deity, God is ascribing deity to this king who will come from the lineage of David. Jesus is pointing to the divine sonship of the Messiah. Jesus then addresses the prejudice that blinds men to salvation. It is a warning to all of us. Beware. Be on guard. Don't catch this. Beware the attitude of the scribes. Their attitude, their desire kept them blind to the reality 
of what the scripture said to the authority of scriptures, to the authority of Jesus Christ, to the authority of John the Baptist. It kept them blind because they loved long robes. The longer their robe, the more important they were. Greetings in the marketplace, best seats in the synagogue, best places at feast. Their earthly ambitions blinded them to the reality of scripture and what all scripture pointed to. They loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. John 5, 44. Everything they did, their prayers were all about pretense to appear righteous outwardly, but they weren't. They weren't caring about the heart. Inside their heart was murder. But they wanted praise, position, and popularity among men. Their reality was an earthbound reality. They devoured widows' houses. They prayed long prayers, and they would receive the greater condemnation because they knew better. They knew better. But their ambition and earthly desires outweighed the conviction of God in their lives. Jesus is the answer. Jesus does not give witty retorts, but his answers are meant to move us to acknowledge who he is, that we might fall on the rock and be broken, that we might ultimately be counted worthy of the resurrection to life. Jesus does not give advice, opinions, suggestions, or philosophy. He speaks to the ultimate questions of life. As our creator and author and finisher of our faith, we owe everything to Jesus. As the God of the living, we live to Jesus. As the son of David, the Lord, we owe him all of our allegiance. We need to give the more earnest heat to Jesus' probing questions and answer him with Peter Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? It's not about the questions you demand of Jesus, but ultimately about the questions and how you answer the questions of Jesus. It's about your answer to the authority of John. An honest answer, is it of heaven or of men? It's about how you answer, what will the owner of the vineyard do to those who reject his son? It is how you answer what is written in scripture. It is how you answer the question of why do you test Jesus? The question on, about whose image and inscription are on your life. It is about how you answer the question of whose son is Jesus? And finally, if David calls him Lord, how is he then David's son? The questions of men are all answered in Jesus, but his questions are eternal. And the answers that are given probe our heart's deliberations, dismiss our prejudice, decide our life's destiny, define our life's purpose, determine our eternal state, defy our excuses, and declare Jesus as Lord. Let's pray.
Lord, let us look to you for the answers to every question that we have on earth. Let us look to you. And Lord, we ask you to be the answer. Simply be the answer to our heart and our mind and our soul. Be the answer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.